Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show. I'm Travis Weiskett, and I am joined by my co-host, Brandon Hayes. Hi there. So today we are going to talk about a, uh, an article that appeared on The Muse uh, recently, uh, The 10 Behaviors That Make a Good Manager uh, at Google. Uh, these are general habits and sort of uh, things that they define, unless the things that you would put on a job description. Uh, we're going to go through these real quick and kind of do a quick conversation on each of these and then try to reframe them um, as what we would put on a job description uh, as a, a responsibility for you as a manager if you were to join one of our teams. Yeah, I think uh, I, I like the framing of these things, but as we go through them, you'll realize uh, describing traits of somebody is useful for deciding if somebody's doing a good job at something, and that's really what this framework was built for. But I think a bigger problem is most people that are getting into management uh, sometimes take years to understand what the job actually is. And I actually like this framework describing these traits and trying to reinterpret them through the lens of what are the activities day to day that a good manager is actually doing and what are the responsibilities that you're expected to deliver. Yeah, definitely. So uh, do you want to kick us off with the first one? Yeah. So we're going to go through 10. We're going to hit them pretty quickly. Uh, and as we do so, we'll, we'll come back and we'll maybe dive a little deeper into some of them in this episode. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, there's hours and hours and hours of content that you could use discussing this. You could write an entire book. Uh, but for now, we're just going to go through them pretty quickly and then we'll come back through and, and focus on the ones that we can give uh, a little more attention to. So the first one is, uh, is a good coach. So that sounds pretty generic is a good coach. I mean, Travis, what is like? What does that even mean? Ooh. a good coach. I mean, there's so many different directions you could take this in. Are you a good coach in that you can provide a technical backstop for decisions? Um, are you a good coach because you're a good listener? Um, does it make you a good coach because you can really like identify with the different people on your team and the way they communicate and how they respond to to expectations um, and how best they get feedback? Um, there's so many different things that a good coach could could do. Um, so I think this is a good example of one that that's um, we could give this to a hundred different people and come back with probably like 105, 110 different uh, explanations of what a good coach is. So, but but in your in your experience, you've been coached by people. Uh, what is the effect on you? Like, if you were to describe the effect that a like the best coaches in your career, what what has been different for you as a result of receiving that coaching? Yeah. The, so the best coaches for me, and I'm going to caveat that uh, this answer with, I mean, this is what works for me and how I approach the world. Um, the best coaches for me are the ones that will have to talk through problems with me um, give, and serve as a sounding board um, and help me think about things, kind of reposition things or reframe things um, in a way that maybe I hadn't thought about it before. Um, for me, I'm the, my personality type is I like to talk things through. Um, mm -hmm. I need to, to like mull over the whole thing and, and being should, able to you should host a podcast loud. actually. <laughs> yeah, I should. Uh, but being able to kind of talk out loud and have somebody to bounce ideas off of, um, having a coach that can serve that and have the context and kind of help guide the conversation, um, and point me in the right direction, uh, is th those have been the most valuable coaching relationships for me. Um, of course, there's, it's a fine line to, to walk. So if you see somebody about to walk off of a cliff, you want to yell, no, stop. Right. Um, and, and, and not try to walk them through all the possible scenarios of what's going to happen if you keep walking. Um, so it's being able to like find that balance and help provide the guidance uh, when needed and then like help understand 
help that even help that person understand how they communicate. It took me a long time to realize that that was my communication style and my learning style. Uh, so having somebody yeah. to help figure that out uh, earlier in my career would have been an amazing help. Um, and I think that's, a, that's something that a good coach does. Hmm. That's, I think I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't thought about it in terms of the talking things through and kind of letting you unwind your own problems in the presence of somebody who can sort of act as a second, uh, like, like you said, a sounding board or a second brain to kind of like pair, like pair programming, but yeah. for pro for problems outside of direct programming stuff. Uh, for me, a, a lot of my best like life-changing coaching has come from somebody who has told me things that I didn't want to hear in that moment, right? It's not, hey, you're doing a great job. It's, hey, this is something that you could do better. And uh, those, are, those are tough to hear sometimes, but the best coaches mm -hmm. in my experience are the ones that have uh, called me out when they saw something like I was about to drive off the cliff and said, yeah. hey, stop, you know, or told me, hey, you're not even putting the car in gear to drive anywhere. Um, <laughs> And uh, I've had those moments in my life, and it's uh, I'm I'm super grateful to the coaches that I've had that have uh, called me out in those moments, and have I think that's a, a real brave thing to do. So there's probably a lot packed in there. We could probably spend an entire episode just talking about the coaching aspect. Oh, absolutely. All right, I'll let you take the next one. Yeah. So number two is uh, empowers teams and does not micromanage. Um, man, there's a lot a lot packed into that. You wanna. Well, so yeah, empowering is an interesting word. I've actually heard people on other podcasts talk about empowerment as a disempowering term because it creates, it talks about a power dynamic, you know, yeah. that a manager has power and their job is to break off some of that power or authority invested in the role and hand it off to somebody and say, oh, you can borrow some of this power and now you're empowered. And, um, uh, and, and that's, I don't think that's how I interpret it. I interpret it to mean that letting people know that they already have that power. They already have the power mm -hmm. to, to enact change and they already have the power to make decisions for themselves. I think letting decisions go is probably the number way, number one way that I would describe that is uh, not like caring about a decision, but not uh, basically being willing to let go of the authority to make these decisions and pushing the decision-making authority down to people with more information. Yeah, I think there's another aspect to that that kind of where I take the empowerment. Um, I've been in bigger organizations where if somebody walks in with a, a manager, or senior manager, or a director title, like everyone kind of defers to whatever they're saying. Um, and I think it's your job if you're in one of those roles that has that fancy title that people are going to, that some people are going to want to defer to you automatically just because of the title. Mm -hmm. It's your duty to come in and say, yeah, I want you to tell me where I'm wrong. I want you to challenge me. Um, I, I yeah. don't want you to just think that I have all the answers because I don't. And that's an element of empowerment to, to make the team realize that, that you are a fallible person and that you have one perspective. And then it's the perspective of the whole team coming together and hashing through the, the, the various possibilities of, of ways to move forward. That that's how you end up with the best uh, path forward. Um, and that... Especially for people who maybe they've worked on really small teams where there's not there's sort of the one person that's kind of the de facto manager. If you move to a larger team and all of a sudden a VP of engineering or a director of engineering hops into a meeting and it's your boss's boss or something like that, uh, th there's a weird power dynamic that happens there um, mm -hmm. just because people want to defer to those titles and defer to people who seem like they're higher up on the, the tree. So when I read uh, Empowering Teams, um, that's what I see. Uh, maybe that's kind of jaded by by having been in director roles or higher the last 
uh, few jobs that I've been in where I know when I walk in that I have the potential to be the bull in the china shop. Um, and I have to be very yeah. thoughtful about how I present that that's a, and make sure that everyone that's a really knows. really good point. Uh, didn't mean to interrupt. I just, I'm just <laughs> noting that's a really good point. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, to, to build on that a little bit, uh, the uh, like the bull in the china shop thing of walking in and recognizing the like the power dynamic that's there. Uh, that is a that is actually a big learning experience. I think almost everybody who moves into a management role winds up having to learn this the hard way. I don't think I know a single person who has learned this before they've accidentally created (laughs) some problem due to a perceived power dynamic where they go, you know, they say something that gets interpreted as some sort of directive when they were just, you know, shoot, shooting the shit or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, and and that's a really hard thing to do for a new manager that kind of feeds into this micromanagement thing. So like I was talking about the empowering teams, the further into your career you get, um, but uh, early on in your career, it's really easy to forget that like that first job that you have an engineering management role, when you're sitting there talking with somebody around the water cooler and saying, man, we really should like get off this rail stack and move everything over to Elixir. Like it's just such a good, I mean, Elixir's uh, pretty great though. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and Phoenix is awesome. Yeah. Um, I will give it all that, but you run the risk of, if you're not careful, like that conversation, somebody taking that and being like, okay. And two days later, after a couple of gallons of cold brew, um, and a couple of sleepless <laughs> nights, this junior developer walks back, Hey, I rewrote everything. And now it's in Phoenix. And you're like, wait, right. why? Well, we talked about this the other day and you were saying we should move. And like, I've been really and, excited about this and yeah. I wanted to move. You're like, Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh, great. <laughs> so there's, there's, and there's that micromanagement by accident yeah. where you can accidentally, uh, micromanage and, and by just by tr- giving information that is your opinion without recognizing the power dynamic. And then there's the literal micromanagement of it's sort of a coping mechanism in a low trust environment where you go, yeah. all right, you you're in charge of handling these types of requests, but I don't actually trust that you're going to get it done. So I'm going to always like be watching that inbox or that Slack channel. And I'm going to constantly like correct the things that you do and make sure that that gets taken care of uh, and kind of protecting the team from, from failing because you don't trust that they can protect themselves from failing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's a really easy trap to fall into when you're moving into a role, managing people that do something that you used to do. That's really hard to let go of. Yeah, I think the micromanagement piece is like that's the first one uh, for coaching new managers to make sure that you are and you this comes back to an empowerment piece. Really, you have to give the teams the room to to learn on their own and uh, do things, even if you could do it faster. I know that was one of the hardest things for me was to assign something to somebody and know that it was going to take a couple of days when for me it was an hour and it was done and it was on production. Yeah. Um, but just know that like in the long term, that hour of my time was better spent on other issues. And those two days of exploratory work and learning and everything that goes into that that piece of work by the other developer, um, that that made them a better a better developer and better contributor to the team. Yeah. Um, and it hmm. I, yeah. I think it's a thing that comes from a good place. Like you want to get stuff out. You want to get stuff done as quickly as possible. Um, but being able to set up that space for people to do their own thing, I think, is is hard. So I, I do think these do go together really well. Um, there are some things that you end up with a little bit further on the the longer you get in, they become a bigger and bigger issue. Um, mm-hmm. And there's and there's a piece of this that like you're going to hit the very first time you're managing somebody. Yep. 
Okay. So moving into the, the third one, uh, creates an inclusive team environment showing concern for success and well-being. And uh, to me, that reads as creates an environment of psychological safety. It talks about uh, creating, a, uh, well, it actually says in the article, it talks about uh, it reflects research on psychological safety, allowing for risk taking. Um, and it's true. Uh, we, we did an exercise at, a, uh, at the company I'm currently at about our team values. And one of them was we, we value freedom to fail. And freedom to fail doesn't mean that the expectation is that failure is a cool outcome that we love. It is that the, what they really mean is the freedom to experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. And experiments can result in success and they can result in failure, but they always result in learning. And uh, if you create a culture where failure isn't tolerated, you've created a culture where learning is basically paralyzed. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is easily, like we could almost have a podcast on this, um, just this topic. Um, mm-hmm. It's such a broad topic. I think the thing that distills it down the most for me is uh, Carol Dweck's work at Stanford, um, where she did the uh, work on mindsets uh, the, and the difference between a growth and a fixed mindset. Um, and when I hear uh, freedom to fail or fail fast or things like that, what I'm hearing is that that's a place that has a, uh, a growth mindset. So it's a place where failures are looked at as an opportunity to figure something out and move forward, find out where your weaknesses are so you can improve them the next time around versus the fixed mindset where, okay, a failure, this is an objective measurement of your ability to do something. I mean, mm-hmm. this is one of the, the challenges, I think, of, of engineering as a whole. Um, it seems so black and white. You did something or you didn't. Um, the task was completed in the time you expected or it wasn't. Um, and there's so much that goes into that uh, and there's so much gray area in, in any creative work um, that it's, it can be hard to communicate that to the rest of the organization. Yeah. And there are hundreds of things that you can do to screw that up. Uh, you yeah. can throw somebody under the bus in a sprint review and say, oh, this person didn't mm-hmm. do this and or they turned this work in at the last minute and that collapsed everybody else's thing and we couldn't get it QA'd in time. And uh, right. and so, thank, you know, thanks a lot, Billy. And, and, um, you know, there's lots or, or having, you know, uh, uh, there's lots of stuff, hazing rituals and, yeah. uh, team di- or, and, and maybe that works for some types of teams and it doesn't work so much for others. At any time you create something that, uh, that certain people on the team don't like or are afraid to confront people about, uh, you, you basically drop the trust level of the team and it's really easy to, it's very hard to build that. And it's really easy to lower the temperature of trust on the team. Yeah, and it's such a fine line to walk to. Um, the yeah, you mentioned like hazing and things like that. There's it's such a fine line between this is something that everybody's had to go through versus like this is just straight up harassment. Right, um, and, it, and it can build culture on a team or it can destroy it. And yeah, it's really it, it, some of these things are very difficult to see. Yeah, I used to work on a team where we had one guy uh, who would be part of the interview process. Um, and everyone used to joke that when he would get involved in an interview, you always expected like one part of the interview to be, um, and then Andre brought out the paddle. Like it was, it was such a horrible, like interview. He was, he was somebody that could like just zero in on a place that somebody was uncomfortable on him and push him. I'm like, how, <laughs> how far can we push him? And, but there was a good value to it, but it was one of those, it was like, it, it felt uncomfortable from time to time, but I was somebody who went through it. Like I went through that uncomfortableness and came out on the other end and it was like, okay, so I've been through that. Um, and like, he didn't do anything wrong. 
Um, there was nothing. I, I say it brought out the paddle. Uh, it, it, that makes it sound harsher than it was. But he just had right. the ability to like zero in on, okay, this is an area that you're uncomfortable on. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, without explicitly saying that. And mm-hmm. a, one thing we took out of that was, was that when somebody came through that interview, if they got the thumbs up from him, um, we knew that they were somebody that could deal in really ambiguous situations where they didn't know all of the answers. The guy was ridiculously smart. Um, so that helped. Um, but and he was able to like understand how somebody was going to be able to work in that gray area. Right. Uh, so that's one of those things. It's like right on the edge. It's going to make some people feel uncomfortable to go through that where like you almost feel like somebody's X-raying into your soul as a developer um, <laughs> and like finding all of the things that you don't know how to do. Um, but also it's how do you how do you deal with that? Um, And how are you going to like when the site is down um, at three in the morning and customers are calling because money is being lost? Like, how are they? How's that developer going to deal with that complete uncertainty? Yep. Yeah, that I think. um, So like uh, that the creation of an environment that's really inclusive will um, uh, basically make it safe for those people to uh, to operate in that area where you know, two or three in the morning stuff could be broken, but it, it, I guess these people aren't, this kind of feeds into the next one about being results oriented, but it, it's people that are focused more on achieving a result together than on pointing fingers in those moments. And the, uh, even making somebody uncomfortable technically by, you know, pointing it, zeroing in on an uncomfortable tech area, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you're not making an inclusive environment. Like you said, yeah. the, the, these areas are, are difficult to zone in on. There are things that make things not inclusive, obviously. Oh, and yeah. there, are, there, you know, there are lots of areas there, again, articles and stuff that you could uh, follow up and read about that. Um, and, but you can see whether a manager is doing their job in creating an inclusive environment uh, that people, if, if you were to ask, if you were to try to measure this or create an OKR around it, uh, you might see, you know, number of experiments that get run per sprint, or uh, you could it could be a survey result about people feeling safe to take risks. You can look at the right. diversity of a team because creating an inclusive environment tends to result in a more diverse team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that OKR, one of the metrics should definitely be not only the number of experiments that were run, but the number of experiments that weren't a success. Yeah. Um, like, and too far in either direction is a bad thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, what did they say? That, that's actually one of the principles we, I mean, coming back to last week's episode, but uh, that we didn't, I don't think we brought this up that when people came back and they'd hit all their OKRs, that's actually like a failure condition. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You're phoning it in yeah. at that point. Yep. All right. So yeah, I, the whole uh, creating a uh, inclusive team environment, I think really feeds into uh, being productive and results oriented. Like if you have an environment that you feel comfortable in and that you're executing well in um, and that the team is operating as a team well, um, you're, the, the fallout of that is that you're going to be productive uh, and results are going to follow. Um, but there's so many different ways to talk about like, okay, so what are the results? Are those results that you have uh, all green OKRs or that you're, you're pushing yourself and failing sometimes um, so that you know where your boundaries are and what you need to do to improve them? Um, so the results 
results oriented is one of those things that that's a double-edged sword like how do you find that right balance of saying yeah we're doing everything and getting results versus yeah we're pushing ourselves as hard as we can and you know what we're not going to get results sometimes or we're not going to get the results we're after um, and i think that's a key thing like getting the results you're after uh, it, it, not getting the results you're after is is different than not getting results Right. But you've been on teams that don't even have a compass for this. When they say results oriented, they're talking about orientation, you know, like, are we oriented toward results? Are we generally moving in the direction of achieving some sort of business level objective? Or are we just sort of wandering around? And I've been on teams before where you're just sort of wandering around doing whatever your CEO says to do that week. Uh, or trying to placate somebody, or you feel like you're trying to, you know, run through for some political objective and phone in some half-assed version of a feature uh, that that you know is going to get that decision's going to get reversed, or your code's going to get put up on a shelf. And so, when you know that the person leading your team has a compass and is oriented toward some sort of genuine, general, like uh, when you know you're oriented toward a genuine result of some kind that's going to benefit the business, you can feel pretty confident that you have uh that your work is going to have mattered yeah yeah for sure i mean i think this is where things like okrs are are can be so valuable kind of to, to tie back again to last week's conversation um and I, it would that makes total sense that that would have that would fit into something like this um since that google uses okrs as such a central part of how they manage the entire company um, it makes sense that you would say okay here's the things the objectives that we have and here's how we're going to say we achieved those or we didn't um, and having that that compass, that north star, uh, is the thing that can can help make sure that you're focused on the right the right results. Mm -hmm. All right, moving to number five is a good communicator listens and shares information. Could you say that um, again? Number five is a good communicator listens and shares information. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. My you energy got just me. Got me. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I thought our call crapped out, and then I realized I've been had. So, <laughs> I love the you. look on your face about halfway through when you realized what I had done there. <laughs> you got me. Dad, we are in dad joke hell. Thank you. Um, so this one, is really, this one is actually really cool because I actually would put this like as number one on the manager's job. I've heard manager yeah. job, man, the, what is the job of a manager be described in a lot of different ways. Uh, I've heard people say it's fundamentally a debugging exercise. Uh, and your debugger is your team and you're going to have to put breakpoints on them and watch what they say and do. Um, I've heard people describe management as an availability exercise where your job is to be available for the team. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, just step one, just shut up. Just, yeah. you know, it's like, this is the hard, and I, the reason that I feel so passionate about this is because it's something that I've struggled with so hard. The, I've had to learn this lesson by people. Uh, that I've managing been managing come to me and say, oh my gosh, stop finishing my sentences, stop analyzing before I'm done talking, stop trying to solve my problems before I fully describe them to you. I just need you to listen. Sometimes I'm just venting. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, so it says is a good communicator, but listening is, is the key part of that I think that I think is more typically lost. It's certainly something that is more of a struggle for me. Yeah, and to your point about this being first, uh, I mean, this is how I described coaching at the beginning. Um, to me, being a good coach is about listening. And part of that's my personal perspective on like what I need from a coach. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, listening is the name of the game. Everything that we've talked about so far and everything that we're going to talk about uh, feeds out of that. Um, and like I know I, I have that same tendency you do where I want to 
to finish a i'm i'm already on to like okay how am i going to solve this i know for me one of the big things that was a a huge help uh when i when somebody would bring something to me and say okay like this is a problem um i need need to talk about it or or it doesn't even have to be a problem it doesn't have to be negative Um, but they want to start talking about something uh for me to ask them how would you like me to help with this like what can i do to help um and that helps them think through the like what is it? Is this is this just a conversation where we're listening, uh, where I'm listening to you and you're talking through a problem and I'm I'm being the rubber ducky, um, and that's perfectly valid. Um, is this something you need to workshop something, um, and we want to uh, you need somebody to kind of role play with uh, through some interaction with a coworker or maybe somebody that reports to you, um, and I can do that. Um, the but figuring out how this comes back to figuring out how somebody else learns and how they process information. Um, uh, I think that's, that's such a, that's one of the keys to being a good coach and listening. That's a, an incredibly, incredibly powerful statement. How would you like me to help with this? Like, I'm totally going to steal that. Cause I've been thinking about how I do this. I have a listening framework that I use on paper in one-on-ones mm-hmm. where I, you know, I take notes. I put things in quotes, literal word for word, what they're saying sometimes. And sometimes if I'm interpreting it, I'll put it in my own words. And if it's something that requires my follow-up, I put a little star so you can see on the video, if you're, we're not going to publish the video, but you, my, my co-host can see, I put a little star in my notes, in my little notebook and say, okay, this requires my follow-up. I'll dump that into Trello and make it a to to do task because part two of listening is if they do want me to help with this, then I need to actually do something about it. Or I wasn't actually listening. Yeah. Um, and so taking that homework out of it. One thing that I do, uh, I started doing, um, so we use confluence, uh, for our like document management wiki. Um, mm-hmm. here at where I work and um, I've started creating uh, spaces that I'm an administrator on and the person I'm having a one-on-one is an administrator on and it's restricted to everybody else and we just keep meeting notes um, so uh, Confluence has real-time editing sort of like a Google Doc where we can both be editing the same thing um, I ask them to put any uh, things they want to talk about in that the before our one-on-one so we can come to the table with a, an agenda of what we want to talk about um, and that helps them focus on how they can get value out of this too. Like I love talking with the folks who report to me, but I want to make sure that we're using that time as to be as productive as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they have things they want to talk about, they can get that in there and sort of think through how do I want to spend this 30 minutes or hour. Or so however you long create I have. a private confluence space, space for mm-hmm. each set of one-on-ones and then a yep. new doc for each one-on-one or one doc for all of them. Uh, uh, a separate space uh, per person. Okay. Um, and then a new doc then, each week or every other week or however often we talk, um, there's a new document mm-hmm. that we create. And one of the things that it has uh, is the ability to add action items. You can add little tasks to it. Mm-hmm. And then on the home page of our space in that overview page, we have here the outstanding tasks and where they were added and anything like that. And it gives us something the next week to go back. Hey, was there anything we needed to follow up on this week? That's great. Because uh-huh. I used to use a single Google Doc to track one-on-one uh items in and it yep. it got really unruly because i was using mm-hmm. one google doc for the entire history of one-on-ones yep. um and that I was just, where i started unmaintainable too. yeah especially with folks who are remote it was super valuable so we would just have that running document but you get a couple months into that and i was you know, like man this thing's huge it'd be so much nicer if there was like more organization around this and every every so often it wasn't every one-on-one but Every other one-on-one, every, every once a month, we would get in and have things that were like action items that needed follow-up um, explicitly. And having that ability to create tasks in the document, too, 
uh, really help with that. That's awesome. I think we could do an entire episode on, on quality listening as a manager. We probably do like we should call the podcast listen up and have a spinoff podcast and <laughs> where you and I don't talk and somebody else does. Maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do listen up episodes where we have guests over and you and I try to keep, uh, just keep our learning hats on. Hey, I, I think you might be onto something here. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is a, a, a feedback episode where we bring people on who listen and just our listeners and, and yeah. they're telling us what they think and what they would like us to dig into. That sounds great. And also terrifying, but yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, moving on. Number six. Uh, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, supports career development and discusses performance. Um, so there's a bunch of compounded ones here in this list that, that they, they're tangentially related, but are, are interesting things unto themselves. Yep. Um, supporting career development is an interesting one. Um, when I've worked at larger companies, that's been something that's uh, been an interesting break from going from the startup world. In the startup world, career development is, yeah, I hired you to do this thing. And like we're growing, but we're not growing fast enough for you to for there to be a an architect position, and then a senior architect position, and then a chief a principal architect, and so on and so forth. Um, at bigger companies, you can totally do that and create that career path for somebody through a company. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at smaller companies, uh, in my experience, a lot of the times, uh, unfortunately, that that path is is out. But I think yep. doing that is such a good thing to say. I want like, what do you want to do? What do you hope to get out of this job? Like, let's say you're going to give me two years. That's awesome. Um, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Um, the what do you hope to have at the end of this? Like, every time I join a, a, a take a new job, um, I have some expectations for myself. What do I want to get out of this? How will I consider this success when I move on to whatever is next? Uh, yep. Whenever that time comes. Um, and I think thinking about that as a manager and what you can do with the people on your team, and this is regardless of whether or not you're a manager with a team of six, uh, a director with a few dozen people under you, or somebody running an organization with a couple of hundred engineers. Like, how can you support all the various people at their current stage in their career and help them get better? Um, and hopefully you grow the organization in a way that you're, you're providing those next steps yourself for them in their career. Mm-hmm. But when you're able to support somebody through that next step and that next step is out of your organization and into another organization, when you manage that right, you're doing that in a way that you just created a cheerleader for your organization when yep. they leave. And yeah, they're going to, you're going to be competing for some of the same people. If, if you create a manager and move them over some to some other company, cause you didn't have that spot for them. Yeah. They're going to be trying to hire people, but they're also going to be the reference. They can say, yeah, this is a place you should go talk to. Maybe you're not a fit for what we're needing now, but go over to my old company. I have, um, you just create this amazing network. Yep. Yeah. I've definitely had that experience. And, uh, developing a career seems like something on, you know, depending on the size of your team that can be kind of intimidating. Um, but there is an emerging larger list of resources. This is something I'm researching more. We have a career ladder here and it's, I, I think the time to develop a career ladder within your organization is probably earlier than you think because yeah. defining what the roles are for junior level, junior one, junior two, uh, mid-level one, two, senior level one, two, whatever you decide to call that. Uh, and then creating a track for individual contributors that says, hey, once somebody has graduated from senior level, just because you've been doing this for 15 years doesn't mean there's nothing else. There's no more value we put on your work beyond that. Yeah. Um, and so once your team is larger than 10 or so, it's actually probably time to start thinking about what your ladder looks like. It doesn't have to be a ton of work. There are published works out there that you can model after. Uh, Songkick has one. 
Uh, we'll post some of these in the show notes. I've seen a, a couple of these. Um, yeah. And I know you're too modest to do this, but you should also include um, your post on this from a, a job, a couple of jobs ago where you talked about the conjoined triangles of uh, what was the title of it? The conjoined triangles of uh, senior, senior level development, senior level development. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The play on the, the Silicon Valley um, uh, conjoined triangles. Um, that was such a good article um, that you put together as a resource. Like how do you actually evaluate talent? How do you actually say this person's senior, this person's not, what makes that person senior? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually use that to start a conversation at my last job. Um, around that because we had a company that had grown very organically and I think there's a really good benefit to to letting a team grow and evolve organically rather than top down especially Mm -hmm. when you're starting from the beginning Um, but at some point at a certain point in that time you have to say okay now we need to really understand how this works we have five people that do the same thing and they have three different titles Um, so it's really hard to say who who does what to anybody outside the organization Right, um, and that part of creating a the career ladder um, uh, is really really important to make sure that you can communicate internally and externally. Um, like all that tribal knowledge that you've got built up, and why this person has um, tech instead of engineer, and this person's a developer instead of a uh, a tech. Like all of those things that you might know as a team, the next person you hire doesn't, and that's just all this additional tribal knowledge that you've got to transfer onto anybody else who joins the team. And that's really costly. Um, so, um, but the, the, something that goes along with with a, when you start talking about a career ladder and progressing in your career is performance. Like, how do you actually get better at what you're doing? And I think in order to do that, you have to have some sort of framework to understand uh, what it is that you're you're expecting of people, what what the expectations of people are in the various roles before you can even get to the point that you can start discussing how they're performing. Right. And too many career ladders I have seen are super generic about this, like works independently, uh, collaborates well, <laughs> like, oh, gosh, you know, so yeah. y- you're really going to have to dig in and say, if I was evaluating somebody and saying this person is doing senior level work, you have to put some serious thought into it. Um, I've been asked a lot of times for the uh, part two of that, that post that I referred to. And I gave a talk about it, but I never really wrote that part too because I quit my job as CEO of Frontside and burned out and that's a different story. But <laughs> I'm, I think I'm fi- what I was really waiting for was to work at a place that had a really well-defined career ladder so that I could mm-hmm. see this in action for a while before I go off half-cocked and say, okay, here's, here's what I've seen work. And so now yeah. that I've worked in a couple places with ladders and uh, have researched it a little more, I think I, uh, I, w- I would love to dig in and, and probably in a future episode discuss uh, Absolutely. Like how how you use that as a backstop for measuring performance and saying, hey, these are the areas you need to focus on. And in conversations I have with with direct reports, um, when I'm trying to help manage their their career trajectory, it's usually when you have that list, there's usually a theme that falls out. And it's like, oh, the stuff that you're weak at are the parts where you're collaborating with people outside of your direct team in other parts of the business. Or the thing that you're missing is a mentorship. Or the thing that you're missing is this specific type of technical skill. You should actually pick up another programming language. And those things sort of emerge naturally from uh, from conversations once you have defined 
the performance criteria that cause somebody to develop their career within your organization. Um, and it's okay for the thing is everybody's scared to ship one of these things because it feels super scary to define these things because you know they're arbitrary and your people will assign tons of meaning to them. And so you have to be really explicit about saying, hey, this is under development. Uh, we can, you know, some of these things will shift and change over time. You know, Google's t own 10 values have, have changed. They used to be eight and they were worded differently. So I think yeah. um, it's, yeah, it's anyway, it just letting people know that you're starting somewhere is better than not starting at all because you're afraid of uh, starting it wrong. Yeah. And I think this comes back to the communication thing we've talked about as kind of a continual theme throughout this. You have to communicate uh, correctly and accurately what this is, and why it's being put in place, um, why it's important, and that it, this is not, these we're not defining this in stone tablets. Like this is something that is going to evolve over time. There's a right. reason we put it on the wiki. Um, and <laughs> it's because we know it's going to change. The stone wiki though. Unfortunately, we engraved it in the wiki that is actually uh, in the cornerstone of our building now. So, yeah. um, so uh, coming to number seven has a clear vision and strategy for the team. So your job is to keep keep the vision for the team and kind of keep the flame on that. And that's interesting because I've seen that role be different. Sometimes I've seen that role be the product manager. Sometimes I've seen that role be the CTO or the VP of engineering um, or in very small companies, even the CEO. Um, and so it's interesting to see this labeled as one of Google's values in a manager. This may be one of the things that is more specific to Google. Uh, in my in my experience, it kind of depended on the company that I was at, whether I felt like I was the one that was responsible for holding that vision or just communicating the vision that we had with the rest of the team. Yeah. I'm curious I, to get I your experience. This, yeah, this is something that, that much like you, I've seen uh, this be something that's kind of delegated to um, – others whether that's a pm or a ceo or a cto or or whoever it is but oh we're just that's somebody else's job i'm just here to do the work put tickets in front of me and i'll be happy mm -hmm. um and I, some people work that way that's all they want to do uh, it's a job to them they and they're really good at it um and all they want to do is just tell me what you want me to do point me in the right direction and then i'll go uh, me personally um and i know a lot of developers who are like this um i want something i, I want to understand the why um, part of this is just my the way I process information in the world to come back to like talking things out. I ask lots of questions. Um, I am straight up a questioner when it comes to that. Um, so having a, a manager that can articulate where we're going and why we're going there I think is really important to me. And I want to be that sounding board for people um, who report to me as well. Um, and I feel like this is one of those things where this kind of Yes, there is somebody, and it's generally the CEO and, and the board and, and some combination of them that hold the, this is the, the vision and the strategy for the company as a team. Um, but how does that translate? Mm -hmm. um, and how, how does the work that you're doing today and tomorrow and the next day help that further that broader vision? Um, and I think when I read this, that's what I hear is the translating that broad vision. We're going to be the best widget maker um, in in the this particular space. Um, okay, that's awesome. But when I'm working on this one machine that prints out widgets, like what what is my adjustment to that machine? How is that helping it? Right. Um, or in even in a more abstract way, the tool that works on the software that reports on how many widgets were made. How does that actually feed into that? Yeah. And you can draw those connections. Um, and I think it takes somebody with some a, a real deep understanding of the work that's being done and why it's being done to be able to make that translation. Um, 
And I think that's that when really I read this, point. that's what I hear. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that those are questions you will constantly be asked. Uh, if people don't understand why they're doing something, um, there are very few people that can operate in that vacuum. Um, if they don't, if they aren't able to attach to your why, if you're not communicating, if you're not facilitating the connection between the business why and the why they would work on something, they'll make their own up or they will give up. And the ones yeah. that, that give up, it, that's a real bummer. And it's usually pretty obvious. And the ones that make their own up, yeah. it can get really dangerous because they will go and down rabbit holes. You cannot foresee. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I have seen both of those scenarios play out. Um, and so I, I think a thing that really informed my thinking on this was Simon Sinek's uh, uh, like TEDx talk or something back in the day. And it's a very simple thing about starting with why that the concentric circles, we t- people often tend to start with how or what we're doing. Uh, but if you, if you want to be successful at something, you really need to, the, the way to motivate people is to start with the why. And uh, yeah. we'll link to that. In he has a whole book on the, the topic that came out of that TED talk called start with why. Um, and it's the, the golden circle of business, I think, is what he, he termed it. Um, and mm-hmm. it's the core of it is why, then what, then how you actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, I think I, it, so, I'm sorry, those are flipped. Um, in his model, it is uh, why you do something, how you do it, and then what you do. Um, yeah. In my and mind, I, I, think, I think there's a there's a translation of uh, the golden circle of, of product uh, product engineering. It start with why, then define what, and then the actual execution is the how. Right. Yeah, that's definitely my experience as well, that uh, I think people like I've worked with product people that don't sell the why of something and they go, OK, here's some Jira tickets or mm-hmm. worse. You have developers that are doing product work that outline exactly how it must be done. And the job of a person is to close, t- close tickets all day. And yeah. um, uh, if if that's your entire purpose, like my what is my purpose in existence? It is to close Jira tickets. And that's a very disempowering feeling. Yeah, but I, that I want to challenge that just a little bit, though, because there are some developers that will flow through different times in their career where that's going to be what they want to do. I've worked with people before when I say, like, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of this? Like, right now, I am totally content to do the work that's put in front of me. I don't, I don't have the mental bandwidth for whatever reason to be thinking about anything bigger than what's immediately in front of me. So I, I really don't care. I'm, that's I'm a, on board okay. with the mission. That's a, that's and a I really wanna, good point. Yeah. I want to move this forward. If you put something in front of me, I will do my part to move it forward. And I've seen that evolve over time. Uh, where that changes to the, okay, that whatever it was, whatever condition was, was in place that had me in that place, that's changed now. And now I want a, a bigger, uh, I want to play a bigger role. That's a, that's an extremely good point. I think, uh, Kim Scott talks about that in radical candor that people flow through different areas of their life. Sometimes they want to take on more responsibility and they, they can handle more. Uh, and other times people just need something to come do for eight hours yeah. a day while they survive some other thing in their life and pretending like people are work bots that, you know, uh, that are optimizable for performance across a very specific set of rules is, is not right. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. that, that clarification and correction. Yeah, I mean, I've been in I've been in in points in my career over the last few years. Um, my mother was struggling with uh, breast cancer, and like there were times where all I wanted to do is just have something to distract me. Yep. Um, and like, so and the level of that distraction and what I needed to do to get that distraction uh, was different at different times. Um, but like as somebody who's gone through that in the last couple of years. 
Um, I can sp- I can speak to that. I wanted that it kind of goes to a, a challenge that I had, um, and I feel that I constantly struggle with um, is that thing of just remembering that like not everyone uh, approaches everything the way that I do. I used to have a question that I loved asking JavaScript developers. There was a a framework called what was it Fab I think, um, and it looked like. Uh, it was a simple web routing framework for Node, uh, written in mm-hmm. JavaScript, and it looked like Lisp. Like it really, like it was just parentheses, and I'm like, hmm. I don't. How does this execute? You go read the code, and it was like less than 500 lines of code, um, but it was everything returned an evaluating function, like a self-evaluating function. Mm-hmm. So it was f- like functions all the way down. Super simple to understand, but like really a, a geeky, esoteric part of JavaScript. Um, and I used to ask that in a, a question if I had somebody that was like, oh, uh, expert or super senior level JavaScript developer, I'd be like, okay, well, let's go look at some code and like, how do you think this is working? And like, most of them, would, if they hadn't seen it before, be a little confounded, and then you can start to dig into it and like see how they unpack something that looks weird and kind of mm-hmm. see that thought process. Um, and I had a uh, a coworker of mine, a colleague of mine, call me on it. Um, and he was like, yeah, that's a great question for somebody like you or me who like geek out over programming languages. But what about the guy who doesn't do that or the, the girl who doesn't do that? Like what, what about them? How do you approach that person? And are you, are you evaluating them wrongly because they don't approach problems the same way you do? That's really interesting. There's like a technical empathy there, right? Yeah. Of, uh, and I think, you know, uh, like in every interview, uh, this actually feeds, I'm, I'll, I'll allow this, this uh, divergence because it actually feeds into the next topic too. So it, it um, uh, th- this idea of technical empathy, the ability to understand that people solve things differently. And you see in interviews how people uh, often have an interview question that's like a thing they learned last week and now expect the other person to have known forever, right? Oh, I learned this thing in the co- in my code last week. Here's a, this will be a fun interview question. Do they know this? Like you're setting the bar to what you learned last week. If you yourself were taking this interview two weeks ago, you would fail it, right? Like, yeah. are you sure this is what you want? <laughs> um, and and uh, and and even when you're sort of testing for ways of thinking and approaching problems, uh, accounting for different ways of doing that and the 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 challenge to having technical empathy and it feeds into the the number eight thing which is having the technical skills to advise a team um uh, i i interviewed recently not i mean before i took the job that i'm currently at i interviewed a few months ago at a uh, a, a place here uh i'm not i'm this is very genuine it was recent it's but it feels like i've been in my current job like a year uh so i interviewed at a place here in town that uh said it's really important to us that our managers have a uh, high level of technical experience. So we actually put them into the general man, uh, general, like general population of developers before they can manage anybody. And they actually mm-hmm. have to ship code in our code base. And I thought, Oh, that's kind of a neat idea. Uh, they carried it to a level that I don't necessarily agree with, but I, I was like, let me guess, you guys read that study from Harvard business review that says that engineers or people in general are happier when they feel like their boss could do their job. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly where this idea originated. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Uh, But the idea of that, um, to me, represents more about the ability to respect and empathize with their work. Not just to be like, not just to have another like developer to bounce ideas off of, but it's that, hey, when I'm experiencing challenges in in my job that are related to, you know, I used to have code nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night in a code sweat where I was just like, my brain was still 
crunching on these problems and I, you know, there's a kind of empathy that goes along with that that is difficult to achieve if you haven't done a job and you might think it's easier than it actually is. And so I think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for that kind of empathy and respect for their work and not necessarily a technical advisor. Yeah, That's my hot take. I, yeah, no, I think I think you're uh, exactly right. And I think that's probably the, the single biggest challenge um, for uh, product managers because they're in that hybrid role. Um, and, and there are a lot of product managers that come from an engineering background, um, but there are a lot more that while they're technical people, um, have never shipped code. Um, and walking that line, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of conflict uh, between engineering and product where that's been part of the problem. And, and uh, they are very different. Um, they're very different roles and responsibilities. And a product person is supposed to be more visionary and is supposed to be more connected to the user. And I'm more like, I would rather have a product manager who gets out of the building and talks to our customer than a product manager who knows about the code if I have to yeah. choose. But yeah. given if you could have all the things, sure, yeah. Yeah. Now, I saw uh, a head of product at a, a previous company um, have a really hard working relationship with a lot of people in engineering um, because their background wasn't super technical. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it was a very technical product that they were working on. Um, and balancing that was, was really uh, hard. Um, but I think for the direct manager uh, in particular, I think you're right. One of the biggest things is like, is there a sounding board? Do they understand the place that I'm coming from? Um, can we like I don't need them to be able to hop in and help debug the code that I'm working on if they can awesome um, but more often than not can you help me think about it correctly mm -hmm. um, do you understand how I would be approaching this and why I'm approaching it the way that I am um, and those are things I think that's where the well-meaning company that you interviewed at uh, was trying to go with that we have put people in the trenches for a while um, right the because they have a way of doing things, it's probably, you know, it's probably difficult to ship code there. And when people say it's difficult to ship code and you're, you, it would be very easy as a manager to say, well, you know, I don't care. I'm results oriented, deliver it. And, yeah. <laughs> but if you've had, you've, if you've had it and you're like, oh yeah, I've had to deal with, you know, your, our Jenkins pipeline is bananas and you have to write some custom groovy code just to get your code integrating properly. If you're going to do anything more complicated than a code push or whatever. Uh, so I don't know if this is still the way it is today there or not. Um, I, I'm trying to think if I know anybody who still works there. I, I think it, most of the people I knew cycled out uh, a couple of years back. But um, I used to know some folks who worked at Twilio um, mm -hmm. back as it was really getting established. Um, and they had a, a thing that they did. Um, they had the red Twilio track jackets and yep. the red Converse. You see them at conferences all the time. Um, and those things, in order to get those two things, at a company all hands, you had to um, ship a feature and demo it um, or, or build something on the platform. Um, I, I mean, rephrase that. It wasn't actually uh, shipping a feature, um, although I do believe some people added stuff to the platform if that was what their job was. Um, that was a cool thing. I was always, I had a friend who was working there. I was always trying to talk him out of one of the jackets. And he's like, hey, if you want to come to work for us, you can, <laughs> you can demo something. You could stay for 30 days and get your jacket and quit. Like, that's all you'd have to do. Um, I never took him up on it um, and still don't have one of those yeah. jackets. Uh, but he was telling me the story of a, a VP of marketing who came in with absolutely no coding experience. Um, and they, at their first, um, uh, the first all hands that they were at, uh, they demoed a feature that they had built. Now they didn't actually build it. They partnered with another one of the senior developers to like help with the actual execution. But they mm -hmm. designed the product. They worked through and could speak to all of the implementation details about it. 
um, but they had something that they could talk about. That sounds track worthy. Yeah, and I think that kind of kind of feeds into like the technical skills. Yep. The whole idea, Twilio is an API company. Like what they sell at the end of the day is an API. Mm-hmm. And if whatever job you're going to do, you have to understand how the API works and all the pieces that move together. And they were like, okay, top to bottom, regardless of whether or not you're technical or not, everyone is going to do this. And as a company, if you see somebody walk into an all-hands meeting and they're wearing the red, um, the red Converse, you know that at some point they have demoed in front of the rest of the company uh, a feature that they were intimately involved in. I, I really like that because a lot of times you see um, at startups you have the have and have not in terms of, oh, these people have the first generation swag. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of like a uh, culture of like first first team and then the rest of the people that showed up later. Yep. And I love that this one is like clearly merit-based. Like you did something that is accessible to anybody to do uh, but requires enough effort that there's like so, there, that you're, it's okay to create a status symbol around it. Uh, yeah. I think that's actually a really cool idea. Uh, yeah. Makes me want to wonder how it, we could integrate something like that. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about this too, um, not to belabor this, we're we're going much longer than I anticipated, but this is I, I'm really enjoying this discussion, and, and uh, yeah. we're we're getting close to wrapping up. Just two more, but in uh, <laughs> it's in the article it says in the Google context, we'd always believed that to be a manager, particularly on the engineering side, you had to be as deep or deeper a technical expert than the people who work for you. It turns out though that the only that that's absolutely the least important thing. It's important, but it pales in comparison. And I think that was the problem I had with it, right? Is that it was the depth of technical expertise that people like had sort of assumed you would need in order to manage technical people. Uh, it's it's it, it doesn't have to do with expertise. It has to do with empathy and respect. Yeah, yeah. Managing and and working with people um, is different than technical, uh, for sure. Um, I I've worked with people in the past who felt that like every manager above should have a should be somebody you could hire on as a staff engineer and feel confident that they are one of the, the, the could operate at the highest level of individual contributor in the company. Right. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think a really solid developer uh, can easily be uh, a manager and manage the person that's smarter or better than they are. Uh, I think that's the sign of a good manager if they're able to do that. And that's a sign of a, a good employee if they're able to have somebody um, that they report to that they're quote unquote smarter than. Um, if somebody has a problem with, with reporting to somebody who's not as smart as they are uh, and they view that as a negative thing um, on one very narrow metric, that's somebody like there's a deeper issue there you need to dig into, I think. Right. Yeah. I, and I've seen, I, I've seen managers that felt like it was their job to be smarter than the employees at the job the employees were. And they weren't very good at either of them. Generally. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that 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 doesn't wind up working out real well. Okay, moving yeah. on to uh, the last couple. Uh, if you'll take number nine. Yeah. So uh, collabor- collaborates across the organization. Um, I think this is one of the key things for somebody when you get into a leadership position, regardless of what level of leadership that is, from from team lead to a, a VP. Uh, is the ability to uh, work with people that aren't directly doing the same thing that you're doing. Um, whether that's working with the product team or working with designers or somebody on support um, or hopping on a sales call um, yeah. with someone in the sales department. I think the second you get into a position of leadership, um, your responsibilities start to expand out horizontally across the rest of the organization. Um, and the further 
up that food chain you go, the further, the more dispersed those responsibilities become. And it's so easy to fall into the other trap of thinking that you're like the den parent for, you know, your Cub Scout troop. And your job is to protect this little, you know, this little club that you've created of your team and protect them from the mean old organization that's trying to take their focus away. Uh, that's a really easy trap as a manager to fall into. And collaborating across the organization is the opposite. It's exposing people to that radiation and, and moving through your own effort, like and moving them closer to customer contact, like moving them closer to understanding. And, and that kind of feeds back into helping them understand the why of their work. Uh, the closer a person gets to their actual customer, I don't know if you've ever sat as a developer on a user testing session where that where people are running user testing against software that you wrote, but mm -hmm. I just wanted to die. It was the worst <laughs> feeling in the world to watch somebody struggle with software that I wrote knowing I am causing this person pain and this pain is like probably reverberating throughout all of our users. Yeah. And so, uh, and you won't understand that stuff until you collaborate further out from your, and, and that's not to say, say to distract people. Like I want to sit you on, you know, I don't want my team to be sitting on two hours of support calls a day. Um, but I want them to understand what the support team does and I want them to have sat on a support call before. Um, yeah. and so it, it's that kind of stuff that, uh, taking responsibility for is in it so much emotional energy. It feels so unsafe to step outside, especially uh, a lot of times engineer engineers are locked into a little like smaller area that's separated from the rest of the company because you're trying to protect their focus. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, one of the side effects of siloing engineers off, uh, in space like that, or if they're working remotely, uh, is, it can be very difficult to facilitate that type of collaboration. It feels like a huge emotional effort. A huge amount of inertia has to be overcome to do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was reminded of something when you were talking about like the, the tendency to, to protect people um, as a manager. Uh, I've heard a lot of managers, I've, I've interviewed a fair number of them, who when you ask like, describe to me what you think that role is, because it is kind of a nebulous term. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of different people put a lot of different meanings behind that. Um, and, uh, I've seen it, uh, or heard it described as a, uh, I'm the shit umbrella for the yep. team. Like I keep all the shit off of them. Um, and I, when you think of your job like that, I think the next tendency that you're going to hit is that you just become the house around your team. Yep. Um, and you start choking off information, uh, and knowledge about what's going on in the rest of the company. Um, and then you have engineers who are surprised and are like, wait, what do you mean the users don't like this feature or nobody uses that feature because of this other thing that's been in the backlog for three months. Um, so I, part of that, you know, I, I would almost adjust this to say not necessarily just collaborates, but facilitates collaboration across the company. That's a really um, good distinction. Like, like I, you want to not just be that person that's doing that, but make sure that the rest of the team is. To your point earlier, I'm like, you don't need your... Uh, the folks on your team sitting in on calls um, for two hours a day, but yeah, once a quarter block out two hours and just go sit in on some calls, some new customer onboarding and go through that with them and, and see how the CS team talks through the features and how people pick up on the new features and things like that. Um, that's so valuable. Um, and if you take it upon yourself as a manager to say, okay, it's my job to disseminate all of this, you're taking on more and you're starting to micromanage the collaboration with the organization at that point. And you need to be the yeah. person who's facilitating that with your entire team. Yep. The fac facilitator is almost like facilitator is probably some, a key word that I would use in describing 
uh, a high quality manager is if yeah. you see yourself primarily as a facilitator, you're probably on the right track. If you yeah. see yourself as a uh, warehousing facility for information, you are definitely on the wrong track. Yeah. The thing you've got to watch out for is when you um, start facilitating synergistic opportunities. Um, that's at that point, you've probably gone a little too far. <laughs> uh, we're generating a lot of shareholder value here today. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. The last one, uh, number 10, uh, is a strong decision maker. And this one is an interesting one that I wanted to kind of p throw over to you because my, my take on this is I try to, uh, as a, as a facilitator, I try to push information out and decision-making authority out to the edges. Uh, and I mean, it's not a democracy necessarily, right? Like there are things that ha calls it sometimes have to be made, but I keep hearing about all these decisions that have to be made by managers. And I find myself not making as many as I hear about other people making in, in other roles. And I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm actually like on an Island where my team, my, my manager's like, no, don't trust him with any decisions. But I feel like I, <laughs> I, I wind up delegating a lot of these types of decisions out to other people in other roles with more contacts and information. And I'm part of the support structure. So I'm wondering what your take is on that. Cause I, I know there are other ways of looking at this. Yeah, so I would reframe what you're saying there just slightly uh, in saying that you've made the decision to push those decisions out um, and be the, the place of last resort when a decision needs to be made and nobody else can make it um, or nobody else wants to make it. Um, so to yeah. some extent, you've made a, you've made a decision uh, just by saying, I'm not going to be the one to make all the decisions. I'm not going to be the choke point for that. Um, this is the kind of team where I'm just saying this is the kind of team we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think at like at its core for me, that's what uh, what is what this is saying. Um, like one of my core values uh, as uh, a manager myself is that I have strong opinions loosely held and I do want people to 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 change my mind. Um, and when I read the strong decision maker, I I, I read that through my lens as like you're willing to make a decision, stick with it and see it through. Um, and reevaluate it as needed. Um, and that the, the scope of that decision um, could be as specific as we're going to use technology X over technology Y, mm -hmm. um, or um, as abstract as I'm not going to make these decisions for you as a team. I want you as a team to come up with a way that you're going to, to solve for this. I think that's a good point. I mean, also, I did decide where we were going for our team offsite a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, uh, where'd you go? Uh, we went to Top Golf and it was quite good. Highly recommend. Yeah. A lot of fun. Everybody I, seemed to have a good time. I did that at the the Q two kickoff for my team. And we did the Q three kickoff there. So yeah, yeah, they see a lot of Q kickoffs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, sure. boy, manager stuff. We. Um, yeah. Yeah. So well, I know. think uh, strength of ma making decisions. I think you're right. Is is basically being willing to. I think maybe what they mean by that is being willing to sit with the consequences of something. So when I delegate, there's a difference between delegation and abdication. Abdication says it's not my problem. You make the decision and you live with the consequences. And delegation is saying, hey, I trust you. You make the decision, and I'm I'm actually willing to have your back on the consequences. And so yeah. uh, that's the difference between abdicating a decision and delegating one. And so that that's one where you choose not to make a decision versus making a decision explicitly to give somebody else that that authority to make the decision. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, we I'm looking at our timer right now. Yeah, we, we went long. well over the, the hour yeah. mark. 
Um, I'm curious for the folks who are listening to this, if there are still folks who are listening to this, um, I, I would love some feedback on the length on this. Is this too long? Is this just long enough? I'm, I'm thinking through the conversation we've had here, and I don't know that there's a ton of areas where we could have trimmed out uh, much of this conversation. And I feel like we could have gone on for a lot longer even. Yeah, I, 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 and it would have felt weird to go, let's do one through five and six through 10 in two episodes, which would have been the appropriate length, but not a really, you know, beginning, middle yeah. and end. So um, I would love to hear, I would also love to hear from people. Uh, send us uh, feedback. Uh, our Twitter bios are on our uh, show page uh, if you want to go there and hit us up on Twitter. Um, but yeah, as we wrap this, this episode up, we'll, uh, we'll give you our, our Twitter handles and everything. And, uh, but I want to thank you for sticking through if you're indeed are still there. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, Travis, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot today, actually. I've taken some notes. We'll put those up in the show notes and, uh, hopefully everybody here, uh, learned and enjoy this future episodes will probably be shorter, but if we get feedback (laughs) that says, no, never stop talking, maybe we'll just live stream the rest of our careers. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you transition this to a Twitch stream. Yeah, <laughs> watch me, watch me, watch me delegate in real time. It's very exciting. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, thanks everybody for listening today, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, feel free to get a hold of us on Twitter. I am T E H Viking on Twitter. Te Viking. Uh, yes, it's a typo that has stuck with me forever. So thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, I am T Swicegood. Um, and it sounds exactly or is spelled exactly like it sounds. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye.